Art of the Cut is brought to you by FilmTools.com, your one-stop shop for production and post-production gear. Be sure to listen for an exclusive site-wide offer later in the show. Hello and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hallfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in film and TV. Today on Art of the Cut, Rick Pearson, ACE, details the editing of Wonder Woman 1984. Rick's filmography includes seemingly an endless list of massive blockbuster films. Godzilla, King of the Monsters, Justice League, Kong, Skull Island, The Accountant, which was the last film I interviewed him for, Maleficent, Red Dawn, Iron Man 2, Quantum of Solace, The Bourne Supremacy, and Men in Black 2, among many others. When I first moved out to L.A., when we first moved out to L.A. back in 88, I was trying to figure out, I, I was interested in two, I had two trajectories. One was cinematography and the other was editing. And I I pretty quickly realized, uh, I, I came out in the middle of a writer's strike and I got a job as a PA on a science fiction comedy called Mutant on the Bounty. I was on the set there and I sort of realized even then that the set probably wasn't the place for me in terms of cinematography and, and even that world. I much preferred the, the sort of more controlled, from my perspective, environment of the cutting room and the creativity that I saw that was involved there. So I began to pursue editorial, got another PA job at a, like a little commercial house, but eventually wheedled my way into cutting music videos and eventually uh, commercials. And for a while there I was working, I did a lot of freelance work out of propaganda films, which is where Michael Bay and Spike Jones and Antoine Fuqua and uh, David Fincher all came out of there. But I got frustrated with that format in that I wanted to tell narrative. I wanted to do narrative. So I took a step back and got a job as an assistant on a television series for Wolf Films, uh, Wolf Pictures over at Universal, but then just kept kind of banging my head against the wall of trying to get them to let me cut. And I was cutting scenes with some of the editors I was working with and finally created a little trailer for one of the shows I was working on and showed it to Dick Wolf and he he really liked it and I said well why don't you just give me a shot to cut a show for you and god bless him he did <laughs> so I did that for a while and then eventually I I really wanted to do something on a larger scale uh, like features and the sort of transition there was I I, I did a mini series called From the Earth to the Moon for HBO and those were all feature directors for the most part. One of those directors, John Turtletob, who had the fortune of working with, suggested me to imagine pictures. They were looking for an editor for this film called Bowfinger, which was being directed by Frank Oz. And so I met with him and he was kind enough to give me a shot. And that was it. That's awesome. I'm really interested in those interviews with the directors, because to me, it has always felt like those interviews are more about getting to know you as a person, getting to know the director as a person and, and feeling like you can live with that person for a year. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not so much about proving your talent or, Hey, I'm a great editor. It's, I think you're going to like working with me and, and here's how I like to collaborate. Yeah. I think that that's, I mean, I can't tell you what it's like from a director's standpoint because I've been on the other side of the other side of that. I think you're probably both of you checking each other out. And certainly with some of the directors that I've gone to meet with, I've, I've certainly checked them out ahead of time in terms of uh, other people that have worked with them or what, they, what they're like, what their work habits are. Often I try to find out if they have a family, <laughs> if, <laughs> if, they're, if they're married, if they're happily married. <laughs> uh, 
Those uh, things are, I think, often key. <laughs> or is their only life really directing this particular movie? Because then uh, that, that could be a bad sign. That is an interesting little tip. <laughs> yeah. But for example, I mean, when I first met with Frank, uh, Frank Oz for Bowfinger, one of the things I did say to him was I said, look, you know, I'm certain that at any moment you can have 10 people in here with resumes that are 10 times the length of mine, but but they all came from somewhere. And this is me coming from somewhere. So if you give me a shot, I know I'll, I'll, I'll work 120% for you. And, and I think, I think it is probably part of that. It's, it's, it's assessing whether or not this is somebody you can literally get, get quarantined with, so to speak, as <laughs> were <laughs> for a year or more. It's a long time to be together in a room. Figuring out how that collaboration is going to work is key. Yeah. I heard a great quote. I think it's uh, Olivia Wilde who just directed Booksmart. It might be somebody else, but I think it was her who said, editor director interview is a lot like going on a first date and deciding if you want to get married. <laughs> yeah, I think that's that's uh, that's pretty, pretty accurate. Yeah, it's an intense, in, intense relationship. And yeah, you need to figure out pretty quickly. In fact, with Patty Jenkins, director of Wonder Woman, we met back in, I can't even remember when now, but it was like in, in November. And it wasn't until February, I think, that she'd finally decided uh, that she wanted to hire me because she just wanted to be very thoughtful about the process and wanted to make sure she would checked every option and checked me out thoroughly. And it is it is like getting married. I suppose. February 2019, I'm assuming? Yes, February of 2019. That's right. Uh, what was the schedule like on the film? When did you start cutting? I actually started beginning of June of 2019, and we had, I think, four or five weeks in Washington, D.C., and then we went to the U.K., and we were out at Leavesden, Warner Brothers Leavesden, so we had cutting rooms out there for the for the bulk of that year. We, we did go to the Canary Islands, to Fortaventura, for about four or five weeks in that schedule, too, around September or so, I think it was. And uh, we wrapped production just before Christmas. It was a long, long shoot. And then we moved into Soho and then cut and, and posted in the UK for the balance of the picture. So it was a long, almost 22 months, I think, all in for me. It must have been 17 and 18 then. If it was 22 months. Oh, correct. You're right. <laughs> I can't. Wow. I've ever worked on. So I, I've kind of lost perspective. I don't know. You, I, math is not my strong <laughs> <laughs> You'd have to fact, fact check me on that. Mine, mine neither. Although the funny thing is, is that I always complained when I was in math class that I'm like, what's this base stuff? Why do I have to learn anything other than base 10? And then, you know, you have a career where all you work in is base 24 and base 30 right. and base 60. Right, right, right. Yeah. So why did, did you edit in those locations? Were you actually in Washington, D.C.? And, yeah. And, and, and why do you think that it was important for you to be there? Because a lot of editors you know, that are working on films like big films like that, they just stay in L.A. and they, the films delivered to them. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I actually prefer to be on location, particularly when it's with a director that I've not worked with before. Part of that is that oftentimes, I think, as you're cutting and if if, if an editor perceives that there's a potentially a problem or a question, really, I don't want to say problem, the director is, is in the middle of production and is often so focused on what's the day-to-day of, of, the, of the fires that are growing right in front of their face that that those kinds of issues sometimes get put to the side. And I find that it's when I do have a question or a concern, I'm happy to take my laptop down to the set and wait between setups and say, look, just here's 30 seconds. Take a look at this. What do you think? And as I said, particularly when it's a when it's a director that I don't have prior relationship with, there's something about it. I just I just still love the set. And, you know, I don't want to be there. Like I said earlier, it's not my place to be there for 10, 12 hours a day. But I like the vibe that I get off of it. and, And it helps helps 
put things in perspective for me that that I'm working on a on a project with, with all these people contributing and and uh, the scale and scope of it. Uh, I just I, I like it. <laughs> I just do. Your your point about going down to the set with your laptop is interesting because I just talked to somebody else that said that they prefer doing exactly what you just said because if you make a call and say, hey, it's Rick, you know, could you come to the editing, you know, cutting room or can I even, even if, can I send something to your phone? Yeah. It's, it's almost like an imposition, but if you're down there on the set, like waiting around in between a lighting setup, it feels much less like you're imposing or it's a scheduled thing. I think that's right. I think, you know, as I said, for, for some directors, for a lot, most actually, I think Patty is certainly an example of that. When she's shooting, it's all about shooting right now. And what am I doing this day? What am I doing today with regards to production and her and her responsibility to all those crew members and her cast. And when I would come down to the set, you know, and I would have my laptop and I would just kind of wait for my turn or she she would know, I would say to her assistant, you know, I'd like to come down, I want to show Patty something. She said, oh yeah, come on down. I think we're going to be turning around to a different setup da, 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 in 15 minutes. So she would sort of have a sense of knowing that I was going to be coming and then I would just see her and she would acknowledge that, you know, after I finish the setup or whatever. And I do think it's it's a little less intrusive than, hey, why don't you come to the come to the cutting room after you wrap? It's just that that scheduling and, and also, again, by the end of the day, often these directors are so exhausted and they've got 20 more people that have been lining up all day to, to, to hound them as well. So to be able to fit into the into their schedule throughout the day for me is very valuable. And you're also starting to develop that relationship that you're going to count on when you get into the cutting room full time with her. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you get you begin to have conversations about, oh, yeah, no, but you see, the reason I would I want to go this direction is because this character at this point is feeling this or whatever it is, if it's a performance question or something like that. And so it's informing me too, as, as far as what the directors, what, where they're headed or what sort of framework they're carrying around with them. So I can begin, you know, it's also my job as an editor, try to get into the director's head as much as I can. And so every opportunity I have to do that, I find there's value in it. Sure. And those specifics that you learn from her about, oh, the reason why she's doing something with a certain character carry you forward for other decisions that you have to make. Of course, exactly. That's right. Yeah. It's all it's all it's a process, so it's all informative. How did you two work together in the cutting room? What was your collaborative style with her? Well, it was interesting. Once we got into post, I, I saw very little of her during production. She very rarely came to the cutting room. <clears throat> and and when I would see her is by going to her trailer or going to the set if I had questions. There were also instances where visual effects needed answers. And so I, I could help be the conduit to visual effects by saying, look, here are the here are the plates we're talking about. You know, do you think we could, how do you feel about this plate or this plate? But then once we got to post-production, whereas during production, she was all about production. <laughs> during post-production, she was all about post-production. So we spent hours together every day. She was in the room and it was very collaborative. By, by the end or even halfway through the post-process, I, I felt like more like I was working with my, my sister <laughs> because we would also talk. We talked about all kinds of things other than the movie, but all of it, again, was part of it. It's all part of the process, too. We spent hours and hours and hours together. One of the things that was, was interesting, because she wasn't really in, in coming to the cutting room at all, she was also really not looking at cut footage very much. And so we, we decided early on, I had this conversation with her. I said, OK, I get it. So 
I'm more like the lighthouse keeper and you just want me to be up there. And if, I, if, if everything seems to be OK, it's fine. But if I see something coming towards the rocks, I'll let you know. And she said, yeah, absolutely. I can't I can't wrap my head around I, or I don't want to wrap my head around post-production unless you tell me there's a problem. I just want to keep stay fixed. But what that did mean for me, it was a bit stressful because when I originally showed her the editor's assembly of the movie, she probably hadn't seen 85, 90 percent of the footage. So it was all it was a brand new movie for her. And it was a, a lot of me hanging out there to dry <laughs> while I was while I was watching her watch the movie but I was happy with the assembly but you know you know when, when there's that much of the movie that's not been exposed to the director it's hard to know how they're going to respond thankfully she was very very happy so that yeah was ev good. everybody's a little scared showing that first thing to the director no matter how experienced uh, you are exactly T tell me about that showing that assembly did you go through the entire film in one shot or did you stop along the way or did you just want to look at a reel and then talk or well i had the whole show mounted and we intentionally and i try to do this as much as i can i try to not have that initial screening be in the cutting room but make it in a in a screening room itself something that's purpose built for that so that it feels a bit more like okay let's sit down and watch this top to bottom we had a couple of bathroom breaks <laughs> But otherwise, the movie was set to, to run top to bottom. And if she wanted to, if she wanted to, we could have just watched it all the way through. But no, she, it was very much a, okay, let's see what this is. And I've yet to work with a director who, on first assembly, wants to stop and start and ask questions. Usually they, they do want to get a sense of it whole cloth because that's how you find the context of what it is that you've got there. You, you need the context. That's an interesting tip about getting out of the cutting room because it does give you that sense like I can stop, I can go back, and then you're not watching it. Yeah, I think so. I think that that can work both ways. For example, sometimes if studio executives want to take a look at something, uh, I'll often encourage or we'll decide together, the director and I, well, let's show, the, show it to them in the cutting room because then it feels like it's a work in progress. It's not like here it is and it's finished. And it also feels like you're inviting, potentially inviting them into the process as opposed to saying, here's the finished piece. It just depends. It, it can be a bit of a political chip to play. But conversely, I also think it's really helpful, particularly for a director editor, if they've been working for weeks and weeks and weeks on something. We had another another screening room at Soho. We didn't use a lot, but occasionally we would go up and just screen the movie in this other space so that it felt like we were just not out of the cutting room and watching the movie as a, as a movie, not as, a, as this bits and pieces process. You can have that sense of being judged when you show that editing cut, but mm -hmm. in reality, right, that director is really looking at their own work more than your work. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it is it, it it's hard to not feel like you're exposing <laughs> yourself when you're when you're showing a, a, an editor's assembly, particularly if if the director's not seen much. But yeah, I, I, every director I've I've talked to or worked with has talked about how how horrifying it is for them to see that first assembly because it's it's a parade of of their failures you know you're just watching oh i should i should why did i do that or why did i make that choice and and so i think it's it, it it probably is much more difficult for them i'm sure it is more difficult for them it's just that i'm also as i said feel exposed as well but yeah it's a parade of their failures i think that i think patty used to say that <laughs> parade of my failures uh, scorsese in his master class trailer that i just saw said any director that doesn't 
feel physically sick watching their first cut of a movie is uh, he doesn't understand if, how that would be yeah. possible. And that's obviously he's talking with somebody that he's edited with his whole life. Yeah. So it's not like he's blaming the editor on the, the failures. It's Yeah, I think it is just you're finally seeing the, the context of what it is that you've wrought. <laughs> how many times have you had you seen that cut with anyone else? Did it change your perspective of your own edit to watch it with her? For sure. In fact, it always, and I've heard many, many editors comment on this, that it's, and I believe it is true, anytime you have somebody else in the room with you, even if it's in the cutting room or or in a screening room as well, as an editor, I have a slightly different point of view because I feel there's someone else in there watching the work. And so I'm I'm, I'm very um, attuned to how they're responding, you know, non-verbally and obviously verbally if it's if they're laughing or crying. I find that to be extremely valuable to have another set of eyes in the room, particularly when it's someone who doesn't know and isn't involved in the intricacies of, of oh, there's my note. I saw my note. You know, I mean, because it, it can turn into that, too. But, yeah, I find it extremely valuable to have the director in the room or a guest. And that's why, to me, previews are so valuable as well, because now you're talking about hundreds of people that are in the in a screening room that don't know the picture and so all kinds of things are revealed what's tracking what's not what's funny what's not funny what's affecting people emotionally what's not yeah it's an interesting process did you do anything to prepare her or do you think that she just she knows how it is working with an editor and that sense of trust to be able to be in a room when you do see that what do you say what do you say the string out of failures or my parade of yeah, failures? My parade of failures. <laughs> you know, to to be in a room with someone when you see your own parade of failures is very difficult. How do you build that sense of trust with a director? You have to do the best you can at reading how a director is doing, particularly when you're about to get into it for that first time. And it is a, it is a sense of trust. And usually there's some little bit of a conversation that I try to have ahead of time about I just want to let you know this, this, and this in terms of whether it be uh, perhaps a, a musical choice that was made or I, I don't very often, unless we've had the conversation ahead of time, on the assembly, I don't very often do any kind of structural changes that deviate from the script because unless it's a, unless we've been working the cut you know, via picks or whatever, and so the director has seen that I have structural questions, typically the, the, that assembly follows a scripted version. But for example, there was a... There was a structural question that I had in the third act of this film that was one of the things I kept going down to the set with her with a laptop to, to say, what about this structure here for this for this little sort of set piece? Because it was a sort of a vague description of a series of events. It was sort of scripted as a montage. I don't actually want to really state what it was, sure, but we arrived at this after after going back and forth many times with my laptop at a at a structure that she was like, yes, that you know what, that actually makes sense for me. But again, I try not to deviate too much from what the script is because there's no point in that. They need to see what it is that they originally shot, I think. I always usually have a slight a few little caveats about or pre-mumbles as I like to say they are a couple of pre-mumbles about this scene 17 I chose to do this ending you know you shot alternate endings or whatever it is just so there's no surprises along the way that makes makes them stop and take them out of the picture well why did you choose that ending I'm telling you because that was my choice at the minute you can play with it but that was that was my choice anyway that it's that kind of stuff yeah and i agree with that idea of and and i made that mistake as i've said before on this uh, uh you know to to my guests on the show with the first cut film i cut was hey i these lines should just get cut or we should swap these scenes and i did it 
And the thing to think about when you're cutting, and, and I'm sure you know this, is the director's intimately familiar with the material. Yeah. So it's different than showing it to an audience where, hey, it's completely fresh to them. The director yeah. knows what's coming. And, exactly, and, yeah. And if, if there's three lines at the beginning of a scene that are missing, that's going to bump for them more than it would for an audience. It is that it's a process, not an event. So, you know, you do need to kind of go. Yes, you could go from A to L, but but B, C, D and E and F and G and H, <laughs> they all need to be explored and either because maybe it isn't maybe it doesn't go from A to L. Maybe it really wants to go from A to F to L or you just don't know until you've made that journey. It's just not a, you know, and, you, and on a feature particularly, you have the often, hopefully, you have the luxury of, of more time to to really explore different options. Sometimes it, it, it's tighter than others. This particular one, because we, we had already pushed the release date from November of 2019 to June of 2020, and now uh, with the situation that we're in the middle of now, it looks like it's moving to the middle of August, but we've, we've wrapped now. So, but yeah, we had plenty of time to sort of explore and turn over every stone. Every stone got turned over a few times, I'd say. Do you remember what the first cut was lengthwise? I don't. It was lengthy. I'll just say that. <laughs> it was lengthier than any any picture I've ever had at that stage. Also quite complex in terms of the interweaving of the of the characters. There were certainly things in there that I thought, well, this, this will probably be the only time we ever see this when we watch this editor's assembly. Scene 17, well, this is it. And some of them did shake out quite easily, but this this picture was quite complex in its its integration, so it wasn't as obvious how to uh, how to tighten it up. Yeah, it was the first assembly was lengthy. How's that? We had a couple of bathroom breaks. Is this? <laughs> Got it. We'll be back in a moment with more of my interview with Rick Pearson. Today's episode of the Art of the Cut podcast is brought to you by FilmTools.com. Since 1996, FilmTools has been Hollywood's one-stop shop for all things production and post. No matter your filmmaking needs, FilmTools has you covered when you need gear for your next shoot or edit. This week, FilmTools is offering Art of the Cut listeners 10% off thousands of products when shopping on FilmTools.com. All you have to do is enter code AOTC10 at checkout. That's AOTC10 at checkout to get 10% off your purchase on FilmTools.com. So whether you need a GTEC hard drive or an Airy Sky panel, make sure to head over to FilmTools.com and check out with discount code AOTC10 to get 10% off your next equipment purchase. And now back to my interview with Rick Pearson. It's interesting that you say that you knew, oh, you know, scene 16 or scene 17 is going to go, but you don't cut it. There's no point, right? There's no, you don't get any brownie points or gold star if you say you don't need this scene and I'm just going to cut it and look how smart I am. No, you don't. In fact, I think that can backfire on you initially, unless it's, Unless, you know, it's a, it's a director that you have a long-standing relationship with, and y if you're saying that in the throes of production and the, and, the, and the director is also struggling with a join or a tracking a character, you know, I might pitch that. I might pitch something like that during shooting to say, look, I've tried this, or let me show you this a couple different ways on pics or on my laptop and see what you think. But, yeah, no, you don't, you don't get any brownie points for, you know, being clever, again, unless that's a – 
I would say, unless it's a conversation you've already had and you're prepping the director for something that you might want to try. For me personally, it would be it would be unwise <laughs> to pull that as a hey, guess what I did, and oh, but, but that's not what I I want to see it first the way that I intended. I I don't you know that that would be more often the response than not. I would think. Speaking of things that you may or may not have had a conversation about, um, music in a rough in a first assembly is probably a huge deal for a director. Is that something you guys talked about yes. ahead of time? One of the roles that crossed over from the first Wonder Woman is uh, there's an extremely talented music editor, Gerard McCann. He worked on the first picture and music for her is extremely a key. And so when I found out that she had she had used several music editors in, on the first show, but ended up gravitating towards Gerard in the end because she just they just aligned with each other in terms of their taste and his he's he's extremely talented. And so early on, I, I wanted to get him involved in the process while we were shooting. And so he came in for a few weeks in the middle of shooting and, and did some temping. He also, I had asked him, I said, could you give me a kind of a palette of, of cues that you know th- that she responds to? I used some of those cues temping myself as, as I would go through. And then he came in, I think the last four weeks or so, I can't remember specifically, but something like the last four weeks of my uh, assembly. And then before we, we ended up presenting to Patty. And so he, he had his hands on a lot of that music. Some of it was stuff that I had temped and stuff and that stuff stuck. But yeah, I leaned on him a lot because I also knew that he had her ear and, and if he didn't, then he could solve it. That also had to have been a great safety blanket for you that you at least knew that the music was going to ring true to her when she saw that first cut. We had conversation. It wasn't, I didn't just blanket say, whatever you want to do, Gerard, I, it, it was a dialogue. But I did find that for the most part, his his choices were spot on and very con- considered and thoughtful. But yes, as you say, it was a safety blanket. If there were areas that she didn't wasn't responding to, we knew that together we could have a conversation and he could find out what wasn't working for her and he, he could find his way down that road. Or you could just throw him under the bus. <laughs> <laughs> well, I never said that out loud. <laughs> but of course, I was as I was always thinking that. <laughs> Talk to me about the process of getting from that first assembly. As you said, that's the big thing is that it is a process. This is not a one and done kind of thing. And what were some of the things that you guys explored? I mean, obviously you can't speak to a lot of specifics, but what were the things that changed that you talked about that needed to be worked on? Because there's a large visual effect component to it. Visual effects need a lot of lead time, depending upon the complexity of of shots that are involved. It's no secret that there's a large sequence that takes place in Themyscira with a giant stadium and a landscape that for the most part doesn't really exist in the real world. And so initially we had certain target dates that we needed to meet to sort of feed the machine a visual effect. So on these movies, you can't often you can't just sit down and start at the beginning and start working your way from the top to the end. You have to say, okay, next week we have to turn over X number of shots from the Themyscira sequence so that visual effects can get started on proof of concept looks and things like that. So it was a combination of hitting those targets with some of these big set pieces, but then working our way through the picture in a linear fashion fashion from top to bottom. You know, I would talk to her then as we made our way through this, I, I would say things like, would you ever consider losing these lines here? Or have you ever thought about, or often I've, I would have cut alternate versions um, when I thought there 
wanted to be line cuts or perhaps scene cuts at lifts and that kind of thing. So then as we would work our way through, I'd say, you know, I also cut an alternate of this. So then it was part of the conversation, not me just presenting these things out of the gate. We found that to be a really great process. But I, I actually find for myself, I have the assistants string together every single take of a line reading. So sometimes we would get to a point and she said, oh, I wonder if there's any other or what are the other versions of Chris Pine saying whatever. And I would show her these string outs. And then and that was a really useful way, too, of quickly getting to like, ah, I see or I never quite got that the way I wanted to or I like takes two and take four. And then we would just bounce around that way. So it was a it was a conversation as we and a, and a collaboration as we worked our way through it. Uh, you mentioned uh, feeding the VFX machine. Was that something that was also happening or that they asked you to start feeding even during production? On this one, less so than typical because we had such a long post process. The initial conversation was, we don't need to turn over anything during production. The trade-off was that during those first few weeks, particularly of, of post-production, we would have to hit these targets of quite a lot of shots. That sort of worked and sort of didn't. We ended up in a bit of a compromise on that, but it still ended up working out because of the extension once we had pushed from November to June initially, that helped us buy more visual effects time. It was a really tight schedule having released last November that everybody acknowledged how tight that was. And so it was a real relief when halfway through production, they pushed to June. And that had everything to do with both the time slot made more sense and it made more sense for the health of the movie because it was just going to be crazy to try to finish in that amount of time. So, Did you do any pre-viz editing before the filming started? I didn't do much of the pre-viz in terms of the initial assembly. That also was a bit of a back and forth process between myself and the pre-viz department. Another integral part of that process was Dan Bradley uh, was a second unit director who I've worked with a few times. And so we have a good relationship in terms of, I, I think I understand pretty clearly what it is he's, he's trying to do. So there were there were a few instances where he had been working directly with previs and then he would say, could you just take this sequence, this set piece, because what I'm trying to do is X, Y, or Z. I would then take the previous and move some pieces around and perhaps put some beats that I felt were missing or would help convey the story that he was trying to tell. And so it was a back and forth again with, with previs. On this picture, I didn't, I didn't come in early so much uh, and start working with the previs from a raw state. It was more so in the middle of the process. Talk to me a little bit about using previs and cutting a scene that's fairly visual effects heavy. Uh, mm -hmm. How do you generate something that's not really there. Yeah, it's it's an interesting sandbox to play in, these visual effects, this visual effects world and these visual effects sequences. And it depends how you integrate previs animation and or post-vis animation into these sequences. For example, in Themyscira, we might have young Diana running across this stadium. Well, there is no stadium, obviously, but I have young Diana. And so I would have my visual effects editor, Tino, very talented Tino. <laughs> I'd say, could you please do a composite for me? Take the previous animation of the stadium and then let's place young Diana in it. Other times there might be set pieces where two characters are up on wires and, and one of them is a largely a CG character, but the environment itself doesn't exist. And so often I would take a stunt performer and do a picture in picture of them placed over this, the, the quote, realized previs. So you could understand, ah, this is meant to be the action, this larger frame. But here's the actual capture, as it were, that I'm pitching to work for this moment. It's it's already sounding more complex than it, than it really is. <laughs> At its simplest notion, it's a shot-by-shot -shot basis to, to figure out how to best tell those stories. When, as you say, there's very little often in the frame at all that was shot in photography. 
I'm interested in the skill set that you have that goes beyond being an editor. You've worked on so many big movies and also so many VFX movies. Is there a difference to just working on a big movie? Like what other skills are there beyond just simple cutting that you have to think about? Part of it and part of what I enjoy about it is that the visual effects aspect of it allows a lot of malleability that you don't have that you can't. In, in a normal, normal is not the right word, but in a in a all-in-camera scene, something that you shoot and, you, well, there it is, it's done, you don't very often have the opportunity to say, yeah, but what if it was this instead? Or what if outside that window there was a flying thing? Or, or if, what if the lasso did this? Or what, you know, because a lasso is this element that can do whatever we want it to do or whatever we want Diana to do with it. So I think that malleability and creativity is an area that doesn't exist in camera film. That's not to say that you can't do, and I do do, and we all do a lot of manipulation, even in standard, you know, split screens and morphs and all kinds of things you can do now much more easily than you could, you know, a couple of decades ago. Because of that, you've got this huge visual effects department, which I, I enjoy communicating with and, and liaisoning with and having a collaborative relationship with in terms of how to creatively solve problems and talking about, you know, what I could really use from post-vis here now is this shot or something that tells the story in this way. So it's a, just a different playing field, which I like. I also like to go back and forth. I'd rather not just do one big tentpole after another, but I'm not always able to captain that in the way that <laughs> I might want to. I was going to say, looking at, looking at your filmography, you've failed at going from one big tentpole to another because that's what it looks like. Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> I do. For example, a few years ago, I did a picture which I really enjoyed, and I enjoyed the director and, and the process called The Accountant, and that was a pretty much all-in-camera uh, film, and uh, I really enjoyed that, and I, I'd love to get back to that one of those. As it happens, the next picture I'm doing is called Uncharted, so it's fairly big. Yeah, I've probably failed again, <laughs> but it looks like a lot of fun. I read the script and I thought, well, this, this seems like a lot of fun. I, like, I would love that my 10-year-old self wants to go see this movie. <laughs> Actually, my 58-year-old self wants to go see this movie and work on it. So, <laughs> How big was your crew on this? Well, on my picture editorial crew, I had the, the fantastic Tom Harrison Reed, who was my additional editor, and he's fantastic. I had worked with him 10, 12, 12 years ago on on James Bond film. So he was my first slash additional editor. And then we had Rob was a second editor, as was Laura. So one, two, Laura. Holly was my apprentice. There was uh, five of us in picture editorial. And then we had Tino as a visual effects editor. And he had two assistants below him. So that's like seven there. Just depends on how wide you expand. If you yeah. include visual effects editorial. Music, of course, there was music editor Gerard. And then at some point we had an additional music editor as well. So, yeah, it's it's seven, eight, nine. It just depends on what part of the process we're in, too. Let's talk about sound a little bit. Either what did the sound department give you as far as like a little toolbox to work with? Or what were you doing in picture editorial to kind of build that world out in the sound? Yeah, we had we had the great fortune of having two really talented music supervisors, Richard King on the American side and Jimmy Boyle on the UK side. And that was partly done because we were doing post in the UK. So it was nice to have somebody local that we could 
you know, we could reach out to, I would often, Tom Harrison, Reed and myself would have a conversation about, you know, we could use this, this, and this here. So he would reach out to Richard and or to Jimmy. They would be bouncing us stuff while we were shooting. And those are sound guys, right? Not music guys? Is that Sound guys. So that's Richard King, the sound supervisor. Jimmy Boyle is a sound supervisor. And then we also went back and mined the uh, the original first Wonder Woman, the side effects stems, because there were things very specific, like the sound of the lasso, some of her movement and things like that. So we would constantly reach out to them. I'd say, if not weekly, every couple of weeks, we might want specifics. Somewhere about three quarters of the way through the process, we sent a few of the set pieces off to them to actually go ahead and do a pass, which was also really helpful because some of the stuff was so specific. Rather than just getting pieces from them, we wanted to get them to do a pass. And there was an advantage to working with a crew that was in the States while we were in London because we had an extra eight hours a day to work with. So that's a, it's an interesting dynamic working that way, sort of buy another eight hours of the day. Is a nerdy kind of tech question. How much do you manage your tracks? And how much do you say, I'm going to put stuff wherever I want and the your, your assistants get it into the right places? Like, do you put dialogue or production tracks on one through four? Are you working in stereo? Are you working in a surround? I work LCR, so left, right, and center. Send, so I always send production tracks to the center. And I typically have my production dialogue tracks are around one through four or so. Obviously, working LCR, I work in stereo, so I have stereo tracks down to, I, I try not to go beyond 16 tracks. I feel like generally that's, I can manage with that amount of tracks. Tom uh, and, and other Tom Harrison Reed, my my other firsts that I've worked with um, in the past are typically fantastic at sound as well, so they are often cutting a lot of effects, doing a lot of effects work for me. Yeah, I keep my I keep the mono production tracks typically around one through four. I know that on this show, Tom really wanted to have a, a mono track that was one one that was dedicated left and one that was dedicated right. I don't remember why he wanted that. <laughs> I never, I never really utilized that, but I, I, he was adamant about it. So we did that. That's about as nerdy as I can get on that. Unless, uh... <laughs> no, that's as, that's as nerdy as I wanted to get. Yeah, it was nerdy enough. I was just curious because I prefer to have like a template so that I know that tracks are going where they're supposed to go. And other people are like, no, I just put stuff wherever I want. I'll clean it up later. I have a habit of putting things in the same place. One thing that I do do which looks messy when you look at the picture tracks, but I know a lot of other editors do this too, is I will often stack alternate takes in the picture track. If it's even a, just a cutaway, I might have, you know, sometimes many different choices, six different choices, eight different choices for an MOS cutaway. That's part of that dialogue process too, or the collaboration process of sitting with the director and, and saying, oh, I, you know, she, Patty might say to me, oh, I wish, I don't quite like what she's doing there. And I said, well, here's six other alts that I pulled for a reaction shot. And we'll often go through like that. And she's, oh yeah, yeah, okay, great. Or sometimes I'll even keep as a placeholder, a reminder of another, another. if it's a line reading, I might just keep the other line reading there and keep the production track in there, just mute it so that it's a reminder to me, like I also liked this performance. And then and that's again, something as a shortcut to say, oh, I see that I also tried something else here, Patty. Do you, you want to take a look at that? Oh yeah, let's take a look. So I do it that way as well. But it can look a little messy for a while for the assistants because I might have stacked tw 12 tracks wide on my picture tracks because I'm moving things up and down and playing around with things. Are you muting those? Do you know the mute fu function in the Abbott? How are you not looking at those? You're just monitoring the lowest track? I don't, I tend not to do the muting as much probably because that didn't exist for so long that I'm just defaulting to the one that's sitting up top. But I do now more so, like for example, if I've had an alternate line reading in there, I might keep the track there, but just mute the track. So I do find that to be a valuable tool. I'm still 
I'm still not sure if it's faster to me than moving things up and down. I tried both actually more so on this project than any other in terms of the muting of picture tracks. But that's also slightly dangerous to me somehow. <laughs> like just, yeah, I, I don't I do not do it as much, but I'm trying to do it more so when it makes sense or again, as if it's a shortcut downstream to remind me of something. I'd really like to talk to you about structure, but I'm not sure how much we can talk about that without getting into specifics. Is there anything you can think of that you can discuss about the way it was in the original cut and how it changed from, but I know we're getting into dangerous territory. You're right. I don't think I could give you any specifics, but I can tell you that one of the things that we did, we, we had wrapped up pretty much by the end of November, end of last November, but because we still had some time, the studio was interested in us turning over a few more stones, as it were, particularly in the third act, there was a pitch for an idea of a third act structure that Patty and I both thought, and well, we all of us thought was pretty intriguing. And so we came back in December and, and tried a couple of structural things in the third act, which we thought were pretty successful. Because of those, we locked picture to that but that also dictated then a couple more days of scoring because now things worked in a, in a structural fashion that was slightly different. The story was being told in a slightly different way, and so music needed to tell a slightly different story as well. So we went back to the UK to do another couple of days of scoring and another week and a half or so of dubbing and finaling, sort of refinaling picture. And did you prove... Uh, to use that term, that structural change with uh, any kind of a screening? We primarily did it amongst ourselves. I mean, we did it with, you know, sort of our own internal friends and family kind of screenings. At that point, I think to the studio and, and Patty, I would say we're not that keen to have another screening per se because of the security ramifications. It's just so difficult to screen these things. And even though everybody signs these non-disclosures, inevitably somebody, somebody just decides they want to talk about it. I think we all felt, you know, we know, we know what's working already. It's just this one aspect that we want to see if it's tracking and, and uh, we all were confident that it was. And, and again, amongst the sort of friends and family that we had internally, we felt like, no, that, that this is the right thing to do. All right. Well, I think that, I think we've got most of my questions. Is there anything specifically that you wanted to talk about that you can think of? I mean, it's funny you say talk about talk about tricks because one of the one of the things that's always interesting to me is people have said to me uh, i'm sure they said it to you too like oh I'm, I'm so so interested in being an editor you know i would love to come in and just watch you work <laughs> someday and that's the that's the absolute last thing <laughs> you really want to do because <laughs> it's it's like watching somebody write on a laptop. I mean, it's, it's such an internal dialogue that a person is having. There's no, there's nothing, there's nothing spectator friendly about the the sport of film editorial. So, you know, uh, be mind numbing. I could talk to you about split screens and fluid morphs, and <laughs> oh my God, everyone, it's like that's an instant case for narcolepsy right there. <laughs> <laughs> I have watched other people edit, and I realize when I don't have my fingers on the control how incredibly mind-numbingly boring it is. Oh yeah, and to hear somebody like going back over a word. Yeah, so I got no, I said it. So I got no, I said I was. You know, <laughs> it just seems like what are what are you doing in there? What are you doing in that room? But you don't hear it when you're cutting because you're. In it, yeah. yeah, I spent a couple of years editing in my basement and my wife would just eventually just yell downstairs, how can you do that? <laughs> You've listened to the same line 400 times. Like, no, no, no. they're slightly different lines. <laughs> yeah, no, it is not. As I said, it is not a spectator sport at all. Oh, no. <laughs> and so I can, I usually tell those people, yeah, if you want to absolutely not be an editor, then you should come in and watch me do it one <laughs> for a minute because it's you will 
just it's, it sounds and looks as if it just makes no sense. It's water torture. That's it for Art of the Cup this week. Thanks for listening. Also, check out Pro Video Coalition for nearly 300 interviews with the world's top editors. Or read the book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors, for a topic-driven, curated experience. Thanks again to my guest, Rick Pearson, ACE. Also, thanks to Dylan Giovanetto, who edited this episode using Adobe Audition, and to Paul McKenna for mixing and mastering. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Hullfish. I hope you subscribe to this podcast and give it a review, please. And finally, be sure to share them with a filmmaking or film-loving friend.